Greetings on another Truth Factor discussion. We're going to conclude our study through the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 24, and shortly here we will resume our study in verse 36. And it is a very fascinating conclusion to Luke's Gospel account. So thank you for joining us for our study today. Hopefully you'll find it beneficial. Paul is not able to be with us here today, but we do have Brendan, who is beginning to join our studies as well. Brendan is here from Oklahoma City. And Brendan, how are you? Sorry, Brendan. Shelton is who I'm talking about. Yeah, Brendan's not been gone that long. Shelton. Boy, we should restart this, shouldn't we? Shelton, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm I'm excited to be able to get started with you guys for sure. Well, I appreciate you joining us. Sheldon is going through the training program here at Seminole Point, and um, he officially begins in February, you might say. But we went ahead and started today, bringing him in on the studies, and he is actually 30 feet from me in another classroom that away. And I'm <laughs> pointing at you too, aren't I? Um, so anyway, he's learning the ropes, and we're good to have. We're glad that we can have him with us. And, and Brendan, it's good to see you back, really. It is. Yeah. Uh, schedule is working out again where I should be able to uh, start popping in more, um, hopefully more consistently. There we go. Not Wayne, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've redone I'm, some of the graphics. so I'm just the fill-in for whoever's absent right now. So, Hey, anytime you're here, that's fine. If, if we can get Wayne to join us at some point, we'll – and, and Eric, get him back. You know, he's kind of getting big in his world and everything. We could use him too. So, all right. So let's see. Oh, how can you participate in today's study? Let's go ahead and get that um, shared with everybody. Well, sorry, things have decided to freeze up on me. There we go. So if you'd like to participate in today's study, you can do that in a couple of different ways. I have um, messed up a few things here. Wow. That's interesting. There we go. No, that's not it either. What am I trying to do, guys? Okay. John, if you don't know, neither do we. How sad. Hang on. <laughs> I have crashed something. Okay. Social media. Where's my social button? That's not what I want. That That's looks like last week, a comment from last week. It is, yeah. Um, okay, so I'll figure it out. Anyway, we have, um, so truthfactor.com is our main website, live.truthfactor.com. We do have a chat area there beneath the viewing window. But if you're watching us at YouTube or would like to, it's youtube.com slash truthfactorlive. We also live stream to Facebook at facebook.com slash truthfactorlive. And I have now created, instead of using our Twitter handle of Truth Factor, we now have a Twitter handle called Truth Factor Live. So we've kind of brought all three of those together. So you can comment through the Twitter universe, if you would, using Truth Factor Live or at Facebook or at our YouTube live stream. So just kind of file that away. We'd love to hear from you. We definitely, what makes this study um, are your comments and your questions. And we appreciate your willingness to do that. So, Let's go ahead and turn it over to Brian, if I can successfully do that, and have you to pick up the study. Well, today I look a lot like Tom, 
but you that's sure okay. do. Hang on a second. There you go. That's better. There I am. Well, we'd like to invite everyone to get your Bible out and join us in Luke chapter 24. Uh, we've already gone through verse th- 1 through 35 in Luke chapter 24, which is the record of the resurrection of Jesus. Last time we studied this, we saw how Jesus on the first day of the week arose from the grave, how he appeared to the women who came to uh, came to care for his body. And then unique to the book of Luke, we saw how Jesus met several disciples on the road to Emmaus and how uh, they spoke for a while and studied for a while. And when Jesus uh, uh, came in to break bread in them, the moment he broke bread, their uh, his identity was revealed to them. And of course, they ran back to tell the disciples. And when they got back to the disciples, it seems likely that uh, Jesus had already earlier presented himself to Peter. Uh, They're called Simon. And that's the point where we are right now at uh, verse 36. And we're going to have Tom do some of our reading today. He's going to be reading for us while I put the chat question out. Uh, Chapter 24, verses 35 through 43. So, Tom, I'll turn it over to you. All right, and uh, I will be reading uh, from the uh, New King James Version. And verse 35, you know, uh, is, is concluding uh, individuals returning from that road to Emmaus, where it says, uh, uh, they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. So here, what's interesting about the account is that Jesus uh, comes to meet them. One of the accounts tells us, by the way, that the doors were locked that Jesus came through, which, which uh, of course, he also was last seen in Emmaus and now has brought himself here. Uh, sometimes we consider that Jesus is no longer bound in the sense of the physical world to the to the means of uh, uh, physical existence. But at the same time, there's some very peculiar things here that are meant to demonstrate something to us as well. So a question we might consider is, what is Jesus trying to do here? Particularly, why might Jesus have asked for something to eat? And uh, I'll throw that out to our, uh, our our board here and see what your thoughts are on that. Why did Jesus ask for something to eat? Well, if you don't mind me answering that, um, I think the main reason I see why he would ask, uh, have you any food here, would would be to, again, strengthen the fact that he is there. Uh, they were frightened, thought that they had seen, you know, a ghost, um, but he shows them his flesh. He, he says these things that I am here, and uh, him eating and swallowing food would have definitely strengthened that. So you're exactly right. Uh, it does say there, as we're reading this in verse 37, they supposed they had seen a spirit. 
which is to say something that was non-corporeal, something that didn't have any substance to it. Uh, so, and that's, it's interesting. That's not the first time that they saw Jesus, uh, not just in the resurrection, but in times past where they saw him and they thought he was a spirit. You might consider him walking on the water too. But I believe you're exactly right. I believe that in, in the largest substance of this, the reason Jesus is asking for food pertains more to the idea that he is flesh and blood in the sense that he is the resurrected person, not merely a spirit. Um, you know, we might kind of point out that he also shows his hands and his feet at this moment. Um, what, what significance might that have? Uh, it, it, of course, it might well be the exact same significance to, to substantiate that he is, in fact, a physical being. But what might he be also demonstrating? What's also possible in showing his hands and his feet? Well, the fact that it was the fact that it was a physical resurrection by showing his hands and his feet, he's showing that it was him as, mm -hmm. as opposed as opposed to being somebody else. You know, I, I, I I've kind of mentioned that that, uh, you know, I've been doing a, a, a quite a bit of study on the resurrection. And, and it's kind of interesting when you think about some of the arguments that are made against the resurrection. Uh, the Gospels answer a bunch of them. You know, there are those who say that it wasn't really Jesus who appeared; it was a spirit, or or a hologram. You know, you know, you know, sim similar to Star Wars, which is what we're familiar with today. And they they might say a hologram as opposed to a uh, as opposed to a uh, uh, a uh, uh, let's let's see let's see what's what's the word and uh, a delusion. You know, where you think of some yourself, people people typically don't. Multiple people have delusions, so a hologram or something like that. And this verse says it's clearly not that. Well, another one that's made is that it wasn't really Jesus who died on the cross. There was some kind of a substitute. But by him showing his hands and his feet, that answers that argument as well. He was proving it was really him. Well, on that, Tom. It it's always interesting uh, hearing those arguments that he, he fainted on the cross or it was an yeah. illusion or the body was stolen or something, uh, especially the illusion one. That assumes that they, people in the ancient world didn't know what death looked like. And the thing is, we're actually more removed from death than they were. Uh, it was, I mean, most of the time people get to the hospital, something happens and death is this thing that's removed from us. We don't see the process first century you could wake up in the morning and find your spouse is, is dead and then there was no hospitals or anything else to remove the body that was your responsibility to deal with the disposal of the body and, and the burial and everything else so these people knew what death looked like mm -hmm. and it's, it doesn't take somebody with a medical degree from harvard to tell when somebody's dead or when somebody's alive and jesus not only shows himself alive but in other accounts too uh even tells thomas Stick your hand in my side. Yeah. See that's real. Yeah. Yeah, because Thomas wasn't there. And, and as we know in John, he said, he said, unless I touch him, I'm not going to do it. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to believe. You know, in, in spite of everything that he had heard, he wasn't ready to accept that Jesus had physically arisen. But the fact that Jesus showed his hands and his feet was willing to let them touch him. And then he grabs food and eats it in front of them. He's showing them it is physically me. And, and by the way, the word that I was looking for that lost my that, that I lost track of was the word hallucination. You know, the, there are some that want to call it a hallucination, but there's problems with that, such as uh, 
such as typically a hallucination is only with one person. So you have the fact that they all <laughs> saw him here, and that would make it, you know, uh, as Sheldon called it, a ghost or 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 a hologram or something like that. But the the physical things that he did disproves that to be the case as well. You know, one, one consideration, too, might be that his hands and his feet suffered particular wounds. Now, a week later, whenever he again comes before them and Thomas is present, John chapter 20 records that Jesus in particular showed him those things to demonstrate the wounds that he had received. Now, I'm going to say uh, maybe a bit more speculative than uh, specific is that it, it does seem like for some, in some ways his wounds had been healed because on the road to Emmaus, they're not looking at a man who had been uh, beaten beyond comprehension. You know, they're, yeah, they're looking at a man that, that, that seemed unmarred at all. Yeah, very good. Um, so it may just be that those wounds were manifested for Thomas. And I wonder if they were manifested here too, that showing the hands and the feet might be exemplary of that. And I'm just not sure. As I said, it's not specific to that. So I'm merely speculating. Well, Brian, let me offer a little bit more speculation since that's what we like to do. <laughs> um, it, it, you, you think about it, they would have cleaned Jesus's body for the burial more than likely. So all the dried blood and everything would have been cleaned off. And the body, albeit dead, was in the tomb for three days. So maybe in that process, the wounds would have dried over. And then when life was restored to the body, you know, they... They would have resumed where they they would have been. I mean, if if that makes sense, I'm I'm not saying that he didn't make it happen, but but that they would, they, but they saw his body after as it was when it came off the cross, but cleaned up, which would have revealed all the sores and everything, or the wounds, not sores. Um, and then after the event, however he wanted it to be, he could. I mean, it's I don't know. It simply just doesn't tell us, you know. That's uh, and again. I, I think if I wanted to make a stronger point about it, um, one of the things about the concept of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is it speaks at length about the transformation that occurs, that our body goes from being mortal to being immortal, uh, from being natural to being spiritual. And spiritual doesn't mean non-corporeal. It means a body that, you know, uh, and there's a comment in the chat room that references this, a body that can inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then it says in 1 John chapter 3 that we don't know what we'll be like in the resurrection, but we'll be like him. So in some ways, there, there's illusion. And again, not entirely clear, but there's illusion to the idea that what we're seeing here is some kind of manifestation of that resurrection body that we anticipate too. Yeah. Uh, first fruits of that resurrection. So the idea of first fruits is you're, you're supposed to be able to discern by the first fruit, what kind of fruit you're going to have. So I I would say that that is probably the illusion that we're supposed to be uh, taking here. And that when Jesus does have wounds, the only reason he has them perhaps is just to manifest his identity, that he that he makes those wounds apparent merely for the purpose of merely or primarily for the purpose of showing to those that were there that this was the same person who had died. Um, I guess we can bring in our chat comment if you'd like, uh, which again, it kind of pertains to that subject and Jesus's statement about, uh, that, uh, you know, when he says a spirit does not have flesh and bones. And so, uh, John, if you're able, are we able to bring that comment in? Yes. Uh, and there was our chat question. 
And I'm not sure if the answer, I think Stephen James made a comment right after that. And I think the comment right after that might just be uh, more generic than pertaining to the question itself. Yeah. Uh, there's the first comment from Stephen. Okay. So Stephen says, it's interesting that Jesus says a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see it that I have. And he then and not flesh and blood, which is, you know, a pretty typical way of saying something similar. So uh, and then Stephen goes on to say the next comment. Maybe he said that because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You know, that's a that's a really interesting statement, uh, consideration uh, about that. And when Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 50, he's trying to demonstrate that the body we have now can't inherit the kingdom. Uh, and Paul had actually been talking in that prior to that of different kinds of flesh. And he says, even in this world, there's different kinds of flesh. So now he's trying to say there's a natural and a spiritual the uh, first Corinthians 15 is trying to draw that out a little bit. So it is an interesting observation that Stephen makes and uh, whether or not it's uh, specifically pertinent to the, uh, to, to Jesus being specific, trying to avoid that statement. I'm not sure, but uh, unless somebody else has a thought about that. Let me throw one thing out real quick and I'm going to try to let this one go. Um, <laughs> it's got me interested. Um, okay. What what distinguish what makes Jesus's resurrection different from someone like Lazarus, of course, is that Jesus rose from the grave, never to die again. But the point was his physical body came back to life after death. Okay, um, our physical body, our our bodies, at you know, when when the Lord comes again, um, our body there'll be the resurrection, will be changed, and so forth. Um, I wonder if it would be safer to guess that the new body that Christ was going to have, if you would, was once he ascended into heaven. I, I wouldn't be so, I'm not going to be hard-nosed about it, but I'm just wondering if, if the point of his resurrection is that his body came back to life. You know, that, 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 was, that was the resurrection from the dead, showing us that we can be raised from the dead. But then the next step is we then go back to be with God. And Jesus was here after the resurrection from the dead, and then he did go back to be with God. But then there were those things, though, like you said. I mean, he hid their eyes as to who he was. Then he revealed himself. He walked through a door when the door was closed. So there's a lot of obvious stuff like that. But that didn't you know, help. You know, uh, John, I've, I've heard I've heard what you're describing before. Uh, I've known uh, several different uh, writers and others who have suggested just what you are that there was a second transformation that Jesus. Uh, and some of that pertains, they might go over to John chapter 20 when Jesus tells Mary not to touch him. He's not yet ascended uh, as perhaps a, a hint towards that. Um, I couldn't. I, and, and, you know, honestly, I, I've never really embraced that idea only because it's never stated. You know, that, that in other words, there's no statement of a second transformation that the, the language of First Corinthians 15 is that we're raised and transformed, that Jesus yeah. is the first fruit of that. Um, so I, I uh, but I do think that, as I said, you're a lot of people do think that very thing. And uh, I don't think it's I certainly think it's reasonable and it does answer some of the unusual nature here, because what's unusual here is that Jesus does sometimes have wounds and sometimes doesn't that, you know, again, that he's eating fish. We're, we're kind of struggling to figure out what that you know, what does that make, you know, our eternal life going to be like? So. So, John, I, I, I know. I think I would say I know why you see it that way, and you're not alone to see it that way. That there's a lot of people who who have a similar suspicion. Now, I don't think it. I, I guess I would say this. I don't think it really matters too much, you know, in the whole greater scheme of things. 
Um, I don't think, like I said, I think if Jesus, if Jesus is in the body of the resurrection at that moment, or if he's transformed one more time into another body that is the body of the resurrection that we're looking forward to, I'm not sure it matters too much. It, um, it doesn't. You know, yeah. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, uh, what I would add to that is, uh, and, and you mentioned earlier, First John 3, it really answers that. It says there in verse number two, uh, we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So I, 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 I mean, we have clues of it, but somehow it's related to seeing him as he is. And that's really the point. Same thing in first Corinthians 15, you know, the, uh, the flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, uh, but we're going to be changed. So we don't really know. We don't understand all the intricacies and the details of what exactly is going to happen. But the one thing that we need to plant our feet on and plant our faith in is the fact that we are going to be resurrected. Yeah. Period. That's beyond that. We don't have a lot of details and we don't exactly know, but it's, but there's going to be some type of a, physical resurrection uh you know and and that's really the point as i see it which is incidentally again why g why jesus you know going back to our question why did jesus have to show himself physically to prove that to prove oh i'm not just a ghost you know my body's not there god physically raised me and the body that he raised is not going to die again what happened to it when he had that went when he went to heaven? That's the sixty-four billion dollar question, you know, because you know, as far as that goes. So. We have one more comment in our chat, and, uh, and uh, oh, my, I sound like a mecca with uh, Get ready, and it's available now. Okay. Right, Tom. Uh, Stephen James says, whenever Jesus is seen in glory, his bodily form is, is seems especially radiant. Uh, and he cites Revelation 1, the transfiguration, etc. Uh, and that's, a, that's a, those are great points. Yeah. Right. Um, our chat question was, why was it important that Jesus demonstrate he was not a spirit? And I think Tom kind of made the point to say that uh, the answer to that is that it's it's important to understand that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead and that there is a bodily resurrection. Um, and we don't exactly understand that. I'm not, uh, I, while we believe that is important to believe to be true, it doesn't necessarily mean it's important to understand how that works. We know there are some that deny the concept of the bodily resurrection. You know, we, we visit sometimes doctrines like the AD 70 doctrine or things like that. But the important point to understand is that uh, that Jesus was trying to demonstrate it wasn't merely uh, appearing as a spirit, but that in fact he it was the same body uh, in changed, but the same body that had that had been put to death. So, so that's our point. Um, we're ready to move on to Luke chapter twenty four verses forty four through forty nine, and I'm going to throw this at Brendan. And uh, Brendan, if you would read for us Luke chapter twenty four verses forty four. Through 49. Yeah, no problem, Brian. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. And the text says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and of the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, um, and, the, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Thank you very much, Brendan. Uh, so I put our chat question in the room, and uh, this references a promise in verse 49, the promise of the Father. And so the question of the chat group is this, what is the promise from the Father? And uh, hopefully you'll be able to find that answer, um, maybe find it rather easily. But let's kind of step back and let's uh, go back again to verse 44, where, again, Jesus is discussing with them uh, the fact that he has explained this. And, and as I said, three times in this chapter, he'll say this was necessary that I should die in this manner. And, and that's an important idea for us, that the, the gospel uh, for it to be effective necessitates the death. Well, the Hebrew writer says it like this, that necessitates the death of the one who makes the covenant. So uh, that that is necessary and is necessary from a number of ways. And last time we discussed it's prophetically necessary as well as it is necessary uh, from the concept of, of creating and instituting a new covenant, that that couldn't happen without the death of the covenant maker. Uh, let me throw out a question out there, one that I think as evangelists we should be able to answer. What is the significance of the Great Commission? Why is that such a profound and important point here? I realize Ryan, that's such a broad question. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's where uh, the, the disciples, Lord's kingdom, the church, whatever term you want to use for it, that's where we get our marching orders. Um, that describes the, the work of the church, basically, and the work of Christians. Um, Christ died on the cross. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to best word this. <laughs> uh, Christ died on the cross is only of importance if people know about it um of course it's it's eternally important but if people aren't knowing about and know that he did this great thing and that he did in order to save sinners like us uh why did it happen i mean uh if we don't care enough to tell people about this uh what's the work of the church and i'm, I'm thinking out loud here I, I know there's a thought in there somewhere uh but wording is is escaping me right now so uh, Brendan, I want to come back to you here in a second with that. Uh, I'll jump over to Tom, though, and give you a second on that. So, Tom, go ahead. Yeah, uh, one of the reasons I see for the Great Commission is it was basically the way that God chose for the gospel to be uh, brought to the world. One of the things to be reminded, and we're going to see this as we go through the book of Acts, as the church was beginning, you read about numerous miracles that take place. You read about the Holy Spirit affecting various individuals and so on. But yet, in spite of all that, every single case of conversion, without exception, came as the result of a man going and telling them what they needed to do. That included Paul. That included Cornelius. That included those on the day of Pentecost that witnessed everything. So it was God's, it was God's plan. Uh, it was the way God intended for the gospel to be spread. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, you sometimes talk about how God doesn't need us to accomplish his will. 
That's true in a sense, but in another very real sense, he does need us because he created it that way. And he's depending on us to do our part. He's counting on us to do it. Tom, let me pull out a comment from what you said there. What you said is important. You you cited the <clears> idea <throat> of the gospel being preached by men. Are there examples in the New Testament book of Acts that you can think of where angels uh, could have preached the message, but instead angels instructed men to go preach the message? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, go ahead. You've, uh, you've got uh, Cornelius as an example in Acts chapter 10. Right. An angel appears. You know, an angel appears right. to him and tells him to send for Peter, who will tell, and as, as Peter recounts it in chapter 11, who will tell you words by which you and your household will be saved. Well, I'm building off, uh, off of that. Acts chapter 8. I'm echoing. What? Yeah, that's it. Okay, I was no, no, you're right. Acts. You're out of the green, Brendan. Go ahead, go ahead, Brendan. Go ahead, Brendan. I, maybe I'm hearing stuff that's not there. And Acts chapter 8, the angel appeared to Philip and yep. sent Philip to go preach the eunuch, not the angel going to preach to the eunuch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, just another example building on Tom's point there. Um, Great Commission, you know, it, it's it's a stewardship almost because men who have been saved have been given the awesome responsibility to proclaim God's gospel. They've been entrusted with his kingdom. Uh, we are stewards of all those things until Christ returns. And hopefully when he returns, collectively, we can hand the church back over to him, pure, unstained, and holy, uh, as the image is uh, in Revelation. Here, here's a question for you. What denominations were founded when angels, cl- they claim, came to them and preached to them a message? Or not just denominations, but also religion. Go ahead. Uh, well, Mormonism is one. Mormonism. Uh, just claimed to have uh, been spoken to by, I forgot what angel he claimed it was. Moroni. Moroni. Um, and it happened while he was in the woods by himself. So there's that. Uh, that's the one that comes off the top of my head. Uh, can you think of a major religion started because the angel Gabriel came to somebody? Uh, Islam. Yeah. Islam, that's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to say uh, that there was another one. Um, one of the Adventist groups might have started that way, too. I just think it's really interesting. You have a lot of denominations that are established uh, with the idea that an angel brought a message to somebody, when in the New Testament, we see very clearly angels were not bringing that message. It was uh, very much like Tom said, the gospel is designed to be preached by men. I almost wonder if that's what it meant in Romans 1 when it talks about from faith to faith uh, is how the, the message of the gospel comes. So I think that's an interesting observation. I think that's one. I, I think that that understanding fits really well in Romans 1. Um, and that's, that's how partly I've been able to make sense of it. But also on the angel part, it's, it's interesting that Paul himself in Galatians 1 talks about in verse 8. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you, a gospel contrary to which is preached to you, he is to be accursed. And he repeats that phrase again, but you notice too, these religions that claim to have been partially founded by revelation from angels, they teach things that are contrary to what's found in scripture. Um, I mean, for, I mean, for example, Islam denies uh, Jesus being the Christ, the promised Messiah. Uh, That's contrary to the gospel. Mormonism, 
teaches a church organization that is exactly a copycat from the Catholic Church, not found in Scripture, uh, along with some other practices that we don't have time to get into. Um, but you notice these religions that get founded by angels, they teach things contrary to the gospel. And there's already a warning in the gospel itself that talks about if we or an angel preaches anything contrary to what's there, he is to be accursed. Okay, I was just looking. We have a couple of uh, um, couple of comments in the chat room, and I don't know if we want to uh, bring these bring these out at this point. If uh, we're able to do so, maybe we should. Uh, which one do you want to start with? That's a great question. Um, we'll hold off on the Michael Davis, uh, where he's got the answer to our chat question. So let's go to Steve James' comment out of John twelve forty eight. Oh, I'm go. sorry. That's actually part of the question too. I'm sorry. Um, let me get my facts straight here. It looks like he was at, uh, he was uh, uh, putting that to the idea of this. Um, Mike Davis made the comment, the Great Commission is a chain. The apostles were to go teach, baptize, and teach those they baptized to do the same. Thus it comes to us, all Christians, to uh, go teach, uh, <laughs> let me see, go teach, baptize, teach, to do the same. So uh, uh, that's a, that's a, uh, that'll stick with me now, Mike, uh, that GTBT. So that's a that's a good point. So all we need is another. You know, it's kind of interesting to think. Yeah, you know, in, in the Great Commission record, it says Jesus sent them out to go to all nations. Uh, did they immediately go out to all nations? Nope. Uh, it, no, it took a know, bit. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it, when you see the word nations, of course, it implies both the Jews and the Gentiles. But uh, we see that it took them a long time just to get to the Samaritans. Uh, that's uh, Acts chapter eight, and then uh, then it's Acts chapter ten before we're actually uh, dealing with the Gentile nations. So it took a little while for them to get out. And and what I think is interesting is in Acts chapter ten and even Acts chapter eleven, there's a lot of concern about the fact that the message was brought to the Gentiles, even though clearly when Jesus commissioned them, he told them that's where they'd be going. So I've always thought that's an interesting thing to consider too. Um, I have a question for you that's a little more takes a little more thought, if we can. In John chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, we see um, a parallel to, uh, uh, to, to what we're reading here. And I'm going to read that to you. John chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. This is when Jesus appears to them. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Um, there's a lot of confusion sometimes out of this passage, but I think that in comparing it to this passage, uh, that what we're really seeing is the same thing. First of all, when it says Jesus breathed on them and, and told them to receive the Holy Spirit, when you consider what we've just read here, uh, as Jesus was talking, um, and I'm going to find the right place to where we were just a second ago. Uh, it says, verse 44, he said to them, these are the words I spoke while I was with you. All things written about me, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Um, so here's kind of a, a tough question. What are we learning if we were to compare these two passages as parallel to each other? Uh, verses 44 and 45 with John 20, 22. I don't know if that's too... That question doesn't make sense. If, if you line these two passages up, what 
What important idea can you draw out of that? If if I, I on that and receiving the Holy Spirit. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I see, among other things, that the Holy Spirit was going to have an influential part in this. Now, one thing that one thing that I see in all of this is that Jesus, over the course of time, and here we have, have after his resurrection, he has opened their understanding a little more at this point. They have a little better understanding than they did before, but they still don't understand at all. And we'll see that in Acts chapter 1. When they, when they're still asking questions that they don't understand about the kingdom, it's going to ultimately be fulfilled in Acts chapter two, or, or they're going to receive, I don't know how you want to describe it, a, a, a supercharger or something like that. But they are grasping more and more. And, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, they're gaining greater understandings of the things that just happened and the significance of those things. And so it's kind of developing over the course of this time that that Jesus, is, when he appears during the resurrection. So that's kind of how I would tie them together. Brian, I got so, so Tom, let me ask you a question then, um, kind of bring these thoughts together. Jesus said that they needed to wait in Jerusalem uh, until the Holy Spirit came. Yet in John chapter 20, he's giving them the Holy Spirit there. Is that a contradiction? No, well, that was the point I was just making. In in um, piecemeal, I mean, there was some of it that they would have received, but also when you look at the John twenty though, uh, telling them to receive the Holy Spirit, the way it's written, it does not necessarily have to say at that moment something happened. He could be pointing you know, toward I what was going to be happening, you know. So you you tie all those things together. Uh, 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 That's a good fact, answer, Tom. Yeah, you know that word "receive." I'm looking it up in my Greek. It, it's an imperative verb, which means a command. So Jesus is well, giving them an instruction. Uh, this is what's going to happen. What I might suggest, Tom, one way we might consider this is that in verse 45 of Luke 24, it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then in John 20, he says he gave them the Holy Spirit. And that perhaps what we're meant to understand is that opening our minds and understanding the scriptures is receiving the Holy Spirit. And that perhaps these two passages put side by side instruct us to understand that even now to receive the Holy Spirit is to understand the scriptures. And that we're understanding or we're receiving spiritual things whenever we understand the scriptures. And so that perhaps these two passages side by side instruct us to understand what the greater significance of the work of the Holy Spirit in us is that is accomplished by the right. scriptures. The only challenge, though, Brian, and I understand what you're saying, has to do with verse 23 of John 21, John 20 where he goes on to say, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Seems to be in a connection with their authority as apostles. Um, now, when, when we get into our Acts study, Acts chapter 2, um, I think there may be more. I, I, let me rephrase this. I've often taught that Acts 2 was the day that the apostles got the rest of the story. But that may not be the case. Um What's happening here in Luke 24 and in John chapter 20, like you pointed out, 
could be the Lord giving them the rest of the story. Then on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh, we then begin to see them speaking in tongues and then begin to share this story. And and it, it may be that they, at this point, they're given the rest of the knowledge they need, but the day of Pentecost was the ability to speak in tongues in order to communicate the gospel to the rest. Um, I'd have to think about the peace milling idea as well, well as Tom mentioned. Well, the what, reason what I say that here. is in chapter one, that they're still asking about a physical kingdom. But, 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 but there's an overlap mm-hmm. in the story there. Acts chapter one yeah. backs up a little bit. Yeah. And, and, and overlaps, um, a little bit earlier in the storyline with Luke. I think if you were to put them together, this conversation with Jesus occurs just before his ascension and have been after their misunderstanding of things. Maybe. I think maybe we could put this together better by understanding that when Jesus and, and John, you, you brought up the point of John twenty twenty three, where Jesus says you have the authority to forgive sins. But look at Luke twenty four forty seven, which follows Jesus's opening their minds under the scriptures here, where he says repentance of sins is proclaimed in his name or the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. So I would suggest that what is happening in John twenty twenty three is the Great Commission. Now, of course, we, we know that like the Catholic Church says, well, this authority to forgive sins is the apostolic authority that the church claims and such like that. But I would suggest that in the in the most specific sense, the authority to forgive sins is only through the gospel. Mm-hmm. That in other words, even like when Simon the sorcerer had sinned and he goes to Peter and says, you know, I, I, you know, and Peter confronts him about that. Peter's instruction is you need to repent with God. I mean, there's never a. Uh, there's never any indication that people had to go to apostles to get their sins forgiven. The apostles brought the gospel, which was the power to forgive sins, and that that would really be the fulfillment of John 20, 23, that the authority to forgive sins is actually the Great Commission. And again, that that, that verse, John 20, 23, is a parallel to Luke 24, 47, just as John 20, 22 is a, Luke, is a parallel to Luke 24, 45. So, so the suggestion is, that what we're looking at here are statements in John that are very figurative and descriptive. And Luke's gospel is very specific and explanatory. So that when John describes the idea of them receiving the spirit, what is happening is Jesus is explaining the scriptures to them. And when Jesus says in John's gospel, you have the power to forgive sins, he's really giving them the great commission that they'll go out and preach. And so I wonder if maybe that's a way to look at those passages, which can be very confusing. That's a good point. It, it sounds more along the lines like the wording of whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Not so much saying the apostles had the authority to create doctrine, but what they taught. And, and, and what I wonder, what they taught came from heaven. And what I was wondering is not so much, and I see what you're saying, it did sound like, I'm not saying that Jesus was telling them that you can forgive sins, but they would know whether or not the person would be was repentant, maybe you know. But but I, I like your explanation as well. Yeah, it's very good. It's like I said, it's certainly something to think about. I've often said that that parallel passages, uh, when they can be lined up, they can really open our minds to seeing things very differently. So or confuse uh, or understanding difficult passages better. And I think a lot of times yeah. John <laughs> John's wording is difficult for us, but Luke's the the value. Of, Studying Luke's gospel is Luke is very explanatory. Luke is very literal 
and not figurative in how he describes things. Um, spent a lot of time on that. Anybody else have some comments, uh, Brendan or Shelton? No, I, I think they were all good comments. Uh, some stuff to look at. In, in our in our private chat, one of us says suggested we needed some sort of heresy warning overlay. That we. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, then we can go back to the chat question. Um, and I think probably uh, on the chat question, um, there could probably be more than one answer. Uh, Michael Davis and Stephen James both gave us some thoughts to think about. The chat question was, what was the promise from the Father? And uh, Mike, uh, uh, Mike Davis gave us an answer out of 1 John chapter 2. Um, verse, let me see, 1 John 2, 25. I'll read that for us so that we've got that. Uh, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. So, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. And he, he's, he points to that being assured in Acts 2.28. Um, you know, Mike, you, you bring up another subject there that probably you don't want to go into. And that's the question of what was the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38. And I, I tend to think it's that very same thing since we're told that the uh, Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life. And I think that's kind of where your point was, too. So one thing to think about is that 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 they were waiting for from the father was the manifestation of eternal life. Uh, So that's certainly one thought we have. Um, Let's move on to Stephen James comment there where Stephen and I just lost it. uh, He Stephen James goes to John 12, 48. And so in John 12, 48, let me read that for us. uh, He makes this statement. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. Um, Actually, and then Stephen James goes on uh, with a different passage. Uh, The Father's voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Is that relevant to the question? So I I think actually um, Stephen, Stephen James is actually referring to the statement that where the voice from heaven was heard. That's a little before that in the Gospel of John. I have to find where that is. Um, but, uh, oh, that's John 12, 28. Um, and so he's kind of wondering if maybe that's part of that, uh, idea of the glorification too. And, and it could be, although I think with John 12, it happens beforehand. So I'm not sure if that's what they were waiting for. Um, I was thinking too, that maybe, uh, anybody else have an answer to throw at that before? What would they have been waiting for? I think what was the promise? I agree with what, I agree with what Mike said. I think that that was that was accurate. Yeah, yeah. I would say that probably if we just summed it up by saying the Holy Spirit, that in John fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, uh, there's the, the Jesus makes a promise to them uh, at the end here uh, of the book uh, of the book of Luke, as well as the the other other accounts. They're to wait in Jerusalem for this gift to come. Uh, so we could just say the Holy Spirit or the revelation of eternal life. I think any of those would be acceptable. So we've got our last part here, and Shelton, I'm going to drop this one on you. And This is the Ascension of Jesus, and we're going to be reading Luke 24, uh, verses 50 through 53. So you've got a lot of reading there. Uh, don't, you know, take, take your time. <laughs> you know, don't, you know, don't get worn out on it. So, <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm in the New King James Version as well. So uh, starting in verse 50, it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. 
Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So uh, here's just a really broad question. Why? Why Why did Jesus ascend to heaven? Um, You know, you would think if he's just won his ultimate victory that uh, he could establish his kingdom here. Why did he ascend to heaven? Uh, it's the defeating death. It, uh, he, he would not be able to be uh, our savior and uh, allow us to eventually beat death if he was taken by it. He, he could not have been bound by death. Uh, furthermore, furthermore, in the book of Hebrews, he couldn't do his job on earth. He can't be a high priest. Uh, the Hebrew writer goes into great detail about that. So he can't, he can't be the one to make intercession for our sins in that way while on this earth. So, mm-hmm. among other and things, there's another reason to reign over his kingdom to sit at the right hand side of his father. His kingdom is uh, in what way, John? Uh, where where is his kingdom? His kingdom is going he to be. He says in Matthew 28, 28 18. I'm sorry. I was. I, I, I messed you, you up. I threw you off. You threw a Bible verse at me. I'm um, sorry. I apologize. No, we say all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Yeah. Um, right. That his, that his authority was in both places. You know, and that uh, uh, that sense of why he ascended is to to take that throne in heaven. You know, to be over heaven and on earth. Uh, to make that authority one. So yeah. that's well, what's interesting, point. Brian, is is the kingdom of God has always existed. It's just after the death of Christ, he ascended to reign over the kingdom until he turns it back over to his father. And First Corinthians 15 talks about that. But he, his throne is in heaven, as we see in Revelation 4 and 5 as well. Yeah, you know, there's an interesting study on that uh, that I'd still like to finish myself about some of the characteristics when sometimes it's called the throne of David, and then sometimes that idea is the throne of heaven. And there's even some language in the Old Testament that talks about the throne of David being brought to heaven in some way. And I think that's that's figurative, not literal. Um, and so it's it's interesting, and that's all about authority. Throne is a reference to an, the idea of, of the seat of authority. And so it's really interesting, a, a really interesting study that we certainly don't have time for today to, to go into this. Uh, John, uh, Tom, you had a comment? Out of John 18? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, John 18 and verse 36, when Jesus was before Pilate, he made the statement, my kingdom is not of this world. So, you know, that's just pointing toward the nature of this kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. He, he, didn't, come to, he didn't come to crush Rome. He didn't come to crush world powers, which is, which is why premillennialism is a failed doctrine. Well, and, and Tom, the interesting thing is, like the Jews of the first century and, and, and many others, oftentimes the focus becomes too physical, too political, and they're using the kingdom or, or Christ, the, the, the system of faith we have as a mean to, means to achieve their political ends. But they fail to understand that if we just do what Christ had told us to do, a lot of the social ills, most of the problems, I would not go farther. I'm going to say all of the social ills and problems that we have would be fixed if we follow the pattern. 
Um, this this book can topple kingdoms, not by trying to do it through physical warfare, but by being the Christians that we ought to be. Um, there's a reason why this book is banned in North Korea. There's a reason why China doesn't like it. Uh, you can achieve things. Go ahead, Tom. And I was going to say, and there's a reason why in America they're trying to ban it. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I've made the statement in dealing with evangelism that there's only one way we're going to change society. Has nothing to do with who's elected president, has nothing to do who's a Supreme Court justice or whatever office you want to deal with. One way we're going to change America is to change hearts one person at a time, convert people one person at a time. That's it. Do the work of the Lord, and that's all that we can be expected to do. Yeah, exactly. And and the truth is, is we know because the Bible tells us we're just not going to convert everybody in the world. It's not going to happen. Even Jesus really only converted a a fraction, a remnant, if you will, who were willing to follow after him. And if Jesus, with the miracles and everything that he did, could only do that, what are we going to do? But we still need to be trying and do what we can to make our our neighborhood, our society a little better, one person at a time. And that's really where the Great Commission hits us. So um, some really good points, guys. Uh, as, as we kind of wrap up our second point here, um, you know, uh, one other thing was to say in John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. You might consider that as part of the, 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 uh, the subject of his ascension. So what was it they were waiting for in Jerusalem? What's the, the next Holy step Spirit. according to Jesus? Holy Spirit. You know what? Him. That's right. Yeah, I, I was going to say cliffhanger. We'll get to that eventually. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It is kind of a cliffhanger, which is kind of why, you know, in our chat room, Stephen James brought up the point that it's really interesting that Luke 24, 51 is wrapping up what Jesus is sending. And then Acts, which is also written by the same author, Luke, uh, the same human author, I should say, uh, that Luke begins that story kind of overlapping almost. And again, I think it's because, like you said, Tom, it's kind of that cliffhanger we're expecting Jesus to do everything, and then Jesus leaves, and we're, you know, what's going to happen next? But Jesus had told them, and that's the big idea that they're, uh, and I kind of see that verse 49 of Luke 24, the promise, is reiterated in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, when he tells them in verses 4 and 5 what was coming. So sometimes I see it as a, as a direct link to those things. Um, does anybody have any final comments before we return to the chat on what we just looked at? Let's jump back. I, it looks like I, I actually don't think we have any answers to our chat question. Our chat question was, uh, maybe it was too easy. Did all the events of Luke 24 happen on the same day? What's the answer? Uh, no. No, no. Right. We, and sometimes, it, like I said, I think that could get confusing if we're not looking at all the accounts to understand they, that, in fact, uh, how many days are between the beginning and end of Acts chapter or of Luke chapter 24? 40, approximately 40. Yeah. Or if you, yeah, want to, if you want to talk about them being in Jerusalem, between 40 and 50. That's true. That's right. Actually, you're right. I, uh, I wasn't thinking about that, Tom, but you're right. If you wanted to go to that, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, 
So that brings us to an end in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're As we're wrapping up here, um, the Gospel of Luke ends with the great victory of Christ, but it also begins the work of the church. And that's kind of a, a profound thing to think about. And you can see how Luke... Uh, Luke is Luke chapter one and then or Luke part one and Luke part two is the book of Acts, second half of the story. And that we're going to be starting into that soon. So I'm excited about that. Uh, John, I'll turn it back over to you. Do we have any uh, uh, anything else to wrap up with? Um, not really. Other than um, I, I think another way of looking at the difference between you know the end of the story and the beginning is the way that Luke begins Acts chapter 1, you can see its connection with the establishment and growth of the church. You know, so there's, it's kind of like, okay, now we're going to write about this. We need to back up and catch a couple of things like replacing Judas and so forth, you know. But I think it's been a good study, Brian. I appreciate you you ending the study today with, um, and just last week with uh, this chapter, chapter 24. Um. Any other thoughts or comments from, uh, let's see, let's start with you, Tom. Any final thoughts or comments? No, uh, it, it, it's been a good study. I've enjoyed going through the book, uh, looking forward to the continuation in the book of Acts. Okay. Uh, Brendan? Looking forward to jumping into the book of Acts. Uh, it's one of the few history books in the New Testament, and that's my game. <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, Shelton, any final thoughts or comments? No, I'm just uh, super happy to be able to join in with the study here. I got in on the end of Luke, so I'm I'm ready to get the whole entirety of Acts with you guys. It should be an interesting study. Um, I have here locally. I'm teaching through Acts on Sunday morning, and I kind of it, it was a nice little coincidence that both these lined up the way that they did. Um, so I've got a two chapter lead on our study. And so that will help me hopefully to be more, um, more useful in our study here through acts and, um, looking forward to, to really getting into that book with everyone here. Um, Brian, any, do you have any final thoughts? I didn't think to ask you. No, no, I don't. Thank you guys for, uh, joining today in the study and thanks to our audience for listening in. And, uh, we're, we're really grateful for your, both your participation and your joining us. Exactly. Um, hopefully Paul will be back with us next week. And if we can twist Wayne's arm, maybe get him to come in. Uh, Mike Davis, they, they've now got the collar off of his neck. So hopefully he'll be able to be with us next week. And, um, anyone else join us here on camera or in the chat room. Love to have you with us. All right. If everything goes according to plan, then we will begin our study through acts and that'll be next Wednesday. We'll start it at 11 o'clock AM central time. It'll be noon Eastern time and 9 a.m. Pacific time and 10 a.m. Mountain time. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.